take your Bibles and meet me this morning back in the book of Mark as we continue our journey through Mark's gospel. And we are in chapter 12, chapter 12 of Mark's gospel. I'm going to be looking at verses 18 through 27 uh, this morning. Uh, the verse, verses initially are not going to come up on the screen, but they will as I uh, preach through it. So I want you to get your Bible or your device, ever how you're looking at God's Word this morning, and uh, meet me there where you can put your own eyes on it. I'm going to read out of the ESV, the English Standard Version of the Bible. And so if you'll follow along, we'll read the text this morning and then come back and we'll go through it uh, line by line. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection? And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. I know, strange, right? Just strange. Who says the Bible's boring? Jesus said to them, is this not the reason, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. That's the key verse in the text. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels, notice the word like, not angels, like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of, but of the living. You are quite wrong. I don't think it's ever a good situation when Jesus tells you that you're wrong about something you think you are so right about. <laughs> this morning I want to talk to you from this text about being dead wrong. It's kind of a play on words but being dead wrong. If I was going to sum up this passage of verses that we just read from Jesus, I would say, I would sum it up in this way. Don't be dead wrong about life after death. Don't be dead wrong about life after death. Don't be dead wrong about life after death. Now, nearly every culture in the world has possessed some type of belief in the afterlife. A 19th century professor at Yale University named James Dwight Dana summed up 
this hope of, ab- of abiding life when he said these words. I do not believe that God would create man and then desert him at the grave. The Egyptians' book of the dead is full of tales of life after death. The tomb of Pharaoh uh, Cheops, who died some 5,000 years ago, contained a solar boat that was designed to carry him through the heavens in eternity. Ancient Greeks were often buried with a coin in their mouths to pay their fare to cross the river Styx into the land of the dead. Some Native Americans were buried with their bows, arrows, and ponies so they would be ready to hunt when they arrived at the happy hunting ground. The ancient Vikings believed in a place called Valhalla where they believed they would fight all day The dead would be raised and the wounded healed every evening. Then they would feast and drink the night away and then go out and fight again the next day and do it all over again. That doesn't sound like a place I want to go to. But the Vikings were quite a different group of people to begin with. Uh, The Muslims look forward to their version of heaven where every sensual physical pleasure can be indulged throughout eternity. In our own era, nearly all non-Christian cults and religions hold to some point of view of life after death. Even some who have refused to believe on Jesus for salvation have felt the pull of eternity. Benjamin Franklin, one of our founding fathers, uh, though he might have been a deist, okay, he believed that there was a God, but uh, Benjamin Franklin wrote... Um, on many occasions in his own personal journals that he did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And so, uh, but, but even Benjamin Franklin had a, a, a view of the afterlife. And this is what he said, the body, this is actually on his tombstone. Uh, if you were to visit his grave, it says, the body of Benjamin Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents worn out, stripped of its lettering and and gilding lies here food for worms yet the work itself shall not be lost for it will uh, as he believed appear once more in a new and more beautiful edition corrected and amended by its author the ancient jews were no exception they also believed in life after death the the talmud which contained their written and oral traditions was full of references to the afterlife. And so in today's text, what Jesus does is that he clarifies some of life's eternal questions. He teaches us how not to be dead wrong about life after death, because if there is something that you simply cannot afford to get wrong in this life, is what there is to come in the life after. Let me set our timeline this morning. It is Tuesday, which is where we were last week. Tuesday is a pretty long day in the recorded life of Jesus. It's Tuesday of Passion Week. We are now less than 72 hours away from the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus has already endured, as we have seen in the previous weeks, the onslaught of questions from both the Pharisees and the Herodians. 
And now there's another group of religious Jews, and they're called the Sadducees. And they thought they would give it a try in exposing Jesus to be the fraud that they wanted him to be. Now, the Pharisees have already attempted this. The Herodians have attempted this. And now they bring in the last religious group or the last faction of, of, of religious activity within Judaism, this group of people that are called the Sadducees. And so basically what I want to do is just look at this in three ways this morning. The, the first aspect is I want us to look at the antagonist of this story. So every good story has got to have an antagonist. It's, it's got to have somebody that's on the, the wrong side of the ledger. You've got to have a bad guy uh, in order for the story uh, to really have some depth and flavor and richness. And so in Mark 12, 18, we meet the antagonist of the story. And, and these guys, as we've already said, they are called the Sadducees, they were a minority sect among the Jews. They may have been a few. Now, let me say this. Pharisees, Herodian, Sadducees often get lumped into the same category, I mean, into the same group, but they're not. They are three distinct individual religious sects within Judaism, and that's S-E-C-T in Judaism. Uh, they may have been few, but they were the most powerful and influential of all the Jewish sects. Uh, the Sadducees controlled all the buying power and the, and the selling that went on, the, on in the temple. So no wonder they're coming after Jesus. Because if you remember back in Mark chapter 11, what did Jesus do to the whole uh, retail environment going on in the temple? He totally destroyed it. I mean, we think we're going through a tough time. Uh, with inflation, Jesus literally went in and destroyed their economy. <laughs> he, he turned the tables and ran and ran them out. So the Sadducees were not very happy with Jesus. Thus, they were angry with Jesus because he had in, interrupted their business enterprises when he cleansed the temple. The Sadducees also controlled the priesthood. All the high priests and the chief priests were Sadducees. They also formed a majority of the Sanhedrin, or the Jewish Supreme Court. It's the best way to look at that. They were aristocratic. That means they were way up the food chain, and they were very wealthy. They were friendly to Rome. Most of all, they, along with the Pharisees and the Herodians, the one thing that they did all three hold in common is they hated Jesus. They were disliked by the common Jew, They were often aloof, thinking that they were better than everybody else. Go figure that. They were rude, insensitive, and very harsh in the judgments they handed down. They cared nothing for the common man. They were also disliked because of their theology. Now, they accepted the Pentateuch. That's the Pentateuch, meaning the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. First five books of the Bible. They accepted those as being authoritative. They believed that one could not base doctrine on what the prophets or any other Old Testament writers had to say. So, they, so basically, once you got to Deuteronomy in your Old Testament, 
they were done. They, they didn't believe anybody beyond the book of Deuteronomy had anything to say to them, which is basically the first five books are written by Moses, so they pretty much are just Moses' only followers. Um, the doctrine that caused them the most trouble with people was that they pretty much just, well, they didn't pretty much, they did deny everything supernatural. So they didn't believe in the supernatural at all. They did believe in the existence of God, but they rejected everything else that was supernatural in nature. They did not believe in demons. They did not believe in angels. And they did not believe in the devil or in miracles. They did not believe in heaven and they didn't believe in hell. They did not believe in a future judgment. They did not believe in life after death, nor did they believe in the resurrection of the dead. They were the extreme fundamentalists of their day. They refused to accept the authority of anything they could not support by a literal reading of the law of Moses. Yet, because they did not believe in life after death, a resurrection or a future judgment, they just tended to live for the moment. They lived their lives for power and profit. If they had a bumper sticker on their car, it would have said something like this, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. That would have been the summation of their view of life. And guess what? Not much has changed today. I would say the view of the Sadducees is probably even more prevalent today than it, than it has been in the last couple of hundred years of human existence. It seems like we're moving more and more away from um, people who at least believe in the spiritual to people who don't believe in anything. And pretty much we believe that at the end of life there is nothing They rejected the Bible, and so do many people in our day. And because they had done that, they have no hope of life after death, and they have no hope of the resurrection. They have no fear of a future judgment. Man doesn't believe in the existence of evil or hell. Man does not believe that he will face God in judgment. So what does man do in light of all that? Well, man will just live simply as he pleases. I would refer to you a passage that we read last week that we won't read this week, and that is just go back and read Romans 1, 18 through 31. That is a perfect picture of what happens when man lives without God or believes that there is no God. But there is a God, and His Word is still the final authority. And listen, whether you believe it or not, there's going to be a resurrection Man is going to live somewhere forever. Man will face God in judgment. I'm gonna, I said it last week. I'll say it again this week. It's not popular, but listen, there is a hell, and it will be heavily populated. That thought alone should cause us to shed many tears. That 
thought alone should cause us to be very restless in our lives, to know that there are people that will, no matter how many funerals, how many funerals you go to, and none of us have ever been to a funeral where the person who died was in hell. But listen, the Bible says, wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many there are that find that path, and narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life, and few there are that find that path. Heaven is real, and so is hell. Jesus is the only hope of salvation. The only hope the lost soul has of salvation is to come to Jesus by faith and believe in what he has done. And so let me just stop real quick and ask a question. Have you done that? Have you done that in your own personal life? And listen to me this morning, very quickly. We, we don't come to Jesus because we don't want to go to hell. We come to Jesus because we want to spend eternity with Him. Now that's what Jesus is going to get at in this passage, is that heaven is not about not going to hell, and heaven is not about being with somebody that you loved here on earth. Heaven is about being with Jesus forever. You know, I, I ponder sometimes this thought is, you know, let me, well, let me just put it to you this way. If everything that we know about heaven is true, and it is, that, that heaven is not a, pl you know, is, is, is a place where there are no more tears, where there's no more sickness, where there's no more death, where there's no more darkness, where we don't have to figure out are we running the clock up, are we running the clock back? You know, you know there, it's, it's, it's daylight all the time. That heaven is this pristine and perfect place where everything goes the way that it should go. Everything works right. Like you eat chocolate and you don't gain weight. You don't have to exercise in order to try to live longer. No, no more glasses in order to see the blurry black and white on the page, that heaven is, heaven is, is all of that and so much more. But, but here's what I often wonder. I often wonder when people think about the glories of heaven and how great it is, and if there was other stuff you know, that, that we could say a, a, about heaven that probably would be true. And, I would, and you were to ask that person or ask a congregation, if all of that was true and yet Jesus was not there, would you still want to go? Because I believe there are people that would. Because I believe a lot of people just want to go to heaven, not because that's where Jesus is. It's because it's where all this other stuff is that they really want. And, and Jesus is just kind of, I can take it or leave it if he's there or not. Listen to me this morning. We can help ourselves in moments of loss 
when, when, we're, when we're at a funeral to think, you know what? Well, you, this person knew Jesus and they, and they died a slow death. They, you know, they died of cancer or Alzheimer's or, 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 or some other slow disease. And we can say, you know what? Great thing about it is they're no longer in pain. They no longer have to deal with that anymore. They're, they're, they're free from all the treatments and all the infusions and all the chemotherapy and everything else that they went through. They're, they're free of all of that. And, and, and so we can, there's nothing wrong with taking uh, comfort and finding peace in that. But, but what's more important than the fact that they are free from all of that is that they're with the one who provides all of that for them. Because listen, it, you, you kind of got to be like Moses when God told Moses, if you want to go over into the promised land, go over, but I'm not going with you. And what did Moses say? Lord, if you're not going, I don't want to go. I don't care how great the promised land is. And it was pretty spectacular because they had gotten the report on what it was like in the promised land. But Moses said, God, I don't care how good it is and how long I've waited to get into it. If you're not there, I don't want to be there. And listen, that's the way heaven needs to be for us. Who cares if mamma or papa is there, or your husband or your wife is there, or your children are there? Hopefully they all will be, and hopefully you'll spend your life encouraging them to turn from their sin and turn to Christ. But listen, heaven is not about reuniting with them. Heaven is about uniting with Jesus. That's what it's all about. But let's talk about their argument. The argument. This silly argument. This absurd argument that they come up with about something that's actually in the Bible. If you look at verses 19 through 23, this is where the argument takes place. Uh, These men, they come to Jesus and they said, hey, Jesus, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and he leaves his wife but no child, then the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. And there were seven brothers and he took the first wife and then he died and there was no offspring. Then the second brother took her. There was no offspring. He died. The third likewise, all the way through the seventh, poor woman. And then she dies. No offspring. And so the question becomes, who's she going to be married to in the resur- uh, who's she going to be married to in the resurrection? Now, isn't that funny for a group of people who didn't m- believe in the resurrection to ask a question about the resurrection? But again, this, this only exposes their sinful heart that all, all they want to do is try to make Jesus out to be some type of fraud. These men appeal to Moses. He was the great lawgiver, the spokesman for God. He was universally respected by all the Jews. They knew of Christ's respect for the Scripture, so they approached with what they see as a problem from the Word of God. And these men have constructed a puzzle that they feel that Jesus cannot solve. Their aim is to embarrass him in front of a group of people that are gathered at the temple, and they began to tell Jesus' story based on this Old Testament law that's called the Leverite. So it's L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E. The Leverite law. And it was, it's found in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. And, and basically, this law made a provision 
for the uh, for the for families and their inheritance. Okay, it was just a way of making sure that family lines stayed intact. Hey, and listen to me. It's really good that this law was in place because if it wasn't for this law, on two different occasions, the line of David would have been severed and Jesus would have never came. In Genesis 38, uh, Judah wed Tamar, okay? So what did that do? That preserved the line of David. And then when we get to Ruth chapter 4, this again comes into play in the marriage between Ruth and Boaz in Ruth chapter 4. And again, this ensured David's line so that Jesus would be born. It guaranteed a family's inheritance would stay in the family. So based on this law, the Sadducees came to Jesus with a tale of a man and a woman. Their question is, who will she belong to in the resurrection of the dead? The Jews who believed in the resurrection believed that Life and eternity would be a continuation of life here on earth. They believed that a man would have the same family in heaven that he had here. And of course, the Sadducees, like I said, they didn't even believe in the resurrection. They were just trying to embarrass Jesus. So they were probably trying to mock uh, his belief in the resurrection as well. And these fellows thought that they had created a puzzle that Jesus could not solve. They thought their question revealed the absolute absurdity of the resurrection. They thought they had Jesus trapped. In their eyes, whether he answered or not, they believed that they could claim victory over him. Whatever their intention, their question was absurd, and Jesus proved it by his answer. So let's close the sermon by looking at his answer and learning some truth that we need to learn this morning in these last moments that we have together. Look at verse 24 through 27 again. This is the answer. Jesus says, is, it, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? Now again, think about who these people are. These people are the religious elites. And Jesus is saying to them, you know what the problem is in this situation? Is you don't know the Bible nor the power of God. Not much has changed today. More Bibles than we've ever had. More translations of the Bible than we've ever had. More books written on the Bible than have ever been written. And yet, the ignorance concerning the Bible is at an all-time high. I'm not saying you've got to do this to be a Christian, but I'm amazed at how many Christians who have been Christians for a long time, who have never read through the entire Bible. Now, that's not a guilt trip, but I'm just saying, if you're staking your life, right? You're staking your eternal existence on this book, might want to read it. Not, not read some of it, but I mean, like, read all of it. And what I find amazing is the people that, that want to argue the most about the Bible who have been Christians the longest and read the least amount of the Bible of anybody. And that's kind of what these people, Sadducees, fall into. Jesus began his, 
his response in verse 24 by telling them that they're wrong, that they have, uh, they have gone aside from the right way. Uh, that uh, One commentator says you could translate it, uh, you're living in a dream world. Jesus looks at these religious hypocrites and says, you man have no idea what you're talking about. You're living in a dream world. You're dead wrong. And Jesus went on to say that their wrong thinking came from two specific areas. They're ignorant of God's word. They read the scriptures and they believe what they read, but they were ignorant of the message of the Bible. If they had just taken the time to read the whole, wor- the whole word and believed it, they would have not been confused about the resurrection. Remember I told you they don't read past Deuteronomy? Well, look what happens. Well, let me get there. Look what happens when you get past Deuteronomy. Listen to what Job says. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another my heart faints within me. Or how about Isaiah the prophet? You are, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Or how about one more verse in the prophet Daniel, in Daniel 12 too. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The truth of the resurrection is printed all over the Old Testament. These Men were like so many in our day. They knew just enough of the Bible to be dangerous. They ran around saying, the Bible says this and the Bible says that. But they were wrong about what they believed it said. The same true, the same is true today. Let me just prove it to you in a couple of quick statements. Many people surveyed, believed that Adam and Eve ate an apple in the garden. That's nowhere in the Bible. Some people, many, believe that the phrase, the Lord helps those who help themselves, is actually a verse in the Bible, and it's not. Some believe that cleanliness is next to godliness is in the Bible. And if you've ever used that as a verse to get your kids to wash behind their ears or brush their teeth or wash their face at night, shame on you. Use it. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just not in the Bible. And you can't say, now Jesus said, he didn't ever say that. Nor did anybody else in the Bible say that. Many people believe that Mary rode a donkey to Bethlehem when she was expecting Jesus And furthermore, concerning the Christmas story, many people believe that there were three wise men at the the birth of Jesus. Most people believe these things to be true, but they are misrepresentations of what the Bible says, or they're just simply old wives' tales that cannot be found in the Word of God. Some of you may say, now, Brother Jason, that, that... I think that's just a little nitpicky. Like the three wise men, uh, big deal. Or that Mary really didn't ride a donkey, uh, big deal. Well, let me ask you this. If somebody will take liberties on that, then that's just step one in taking more liberties and just a small step towards a bigger step 
of taking bigger liberties that could be far more dangerous than just that small step. My point is to prove to you how we and how people even in our day fall into the same trappings as these that we are reading in the text today. You know what? If you just read the Bible, really read it, you'd quit believing a lot of what you believe. You would. You'd be amazed at what you quit believing. And you would. I thought that was in the Bible. Look, good practice is somebody tells you, well, now the Bible says this, you got to tell them. Now, where, where, where is that? Where's that found? Well, I don't know. It's somewhere in the Bible. More likely, it's nowhere in the Bible. Dude, write this verse down. If you don't write another verse down, write this verse down. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Do your best. Do your best. Ask the Holy Spirit for help. Read the Bible for yourself. Read the entire Bible for yourself. You know, if you just took 10 minutes a day and read your Bible, and you did that every day, you could complete, or excuse me, 15 minutes, every day you could complete the entire Bible in one year. It's not that hard. It's not that difficult of a task. I would encourage you to do it. You'd be amazed at what you might learn. They were also ignorant of God's power. They were ignorant of God's power. These, these men believed that God created the universe out of nothing, and they believed that God formed Adam and Eve out of the earth and breathed life into his nostrils. And they believed that God did all that, but they just didn't believe God could raise somebody from the dead. And Jeremiah 32, 17 and Jeremiah 32, 27 reminds us that Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too hard for God. There's a lot more I'd like to say about that, but for the sake of time, I'm going to push on. Look at those last words by the Lord himself. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Jesus had to correct some really bad theology here at the end in answering their question because they're... they're their, their whole premise was wrong because of their lack of understanding of the Bible. So Jesus has to go back and he has to correct the misunderstanding. Jesus is really doing more than answering a question. He, he's really going back and he's laying some, some very foundational theological understanding for these individuals. And, and here's what he does. Jesus re refers to the nature of heavenly relationships. 
So Jesus has got to correct that, listen, our relationships here on earth, they are nothing more than relationships here on earth. You will not have the same relationship with your spouse in heaven if both of you go that you do here on earth. You will not have the same relationship with your children in heaven that you do on earth if you and your children go to heaven. Because the point of heaven is not us taking our earthly relationships into the heavenly realm. It's about us having these relationships here on earth that God gives us, you know, husbands and wives for, for procreation, for enjoyment. Uh, uh, the, you know, the, that's part of the reason why God uh, designed marriage for his continuation of the species, uh, uh, a companionship, for uh, the enjoyment of being with each other. Uh, when we get to heaven, uh, we will be like angels, only in the sense that we will be spiritual beings that will have no need for physical necessities of this earthly life. Why? Because the relationship that becomes most important in heaven is not the relationship that we had on earth, but the relationship with our Savior. Now, when we get to heaven, does that mean that we won't know each other? And the answer to that is, no, we will know each other. He says you will be known as you are known. When Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration with uh, um, Peter, James, and John, and um, Moses and Elijah showed up, Peter, James, and John knew who they were, right? Hey, that's Moses. That's Elijah. They were still known as they were known. But Here's something clever that Jesus does. Jesus here helps them to understand that the, that the resurrection is not just talked about outside of the Pentateuch, but Jesus goes all the way back into the Pentateuch, back into Exodus chapter 3 and 4, and he shows them how this works. Look at the last two, two lines of this text on the screen. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. So let, let me work this out for you. Watch this. This is coming up on the screen. This is the logical movement that Jesus does. God is the living. God is the God of the living, not the dead. That's, number, that's argument number one. Then Jesus says, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the same time that God speaks to Moses. So the bush is burning, God is speaking, and when he's speaking, he is speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the same time that he's speaking to Moses. Therefore, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive at the time God speaks to Moses. Keep following the logic. However, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died many years before. Therefore, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must have been resurrected in the meantime. 
Therefore, there is a resurrection. So Jesus took the only one of the books of the Bible that they believed, and he says, look, right here in your own Pentateuch, do you see the validity of the resurrection? Let's end with this verse here. I've got a lot of other verses, but I'm out of time, and I could say a whole lot more, and we'd be here a whole lot longer. Listen to Jesus' words. He says, truly I say to you, whoever hears these words and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and he who does not come into judgment but passes from death unto life. What's important here about this story? What's important is, is that Jesus says that the afterlife is the most important life there is. And that the one part that you can't be dead wrong about is what happens to you after you die. When you die, they will either burn you up and put you in an urn, or they will, lay, or they will pump you full of fluid and lay you in a casket. But one way or the other, we are all going to die. When, no one knows. Some of us, it might, it's, it, it's, it's sooner rather than later. Some of us think we've got a lot more time left, and in, and in the scheme of life, there's not a lot of time left. The bottom line is, is that death will come to all of us. And, and it might be an easy way to, to, to think that, you know what, I, I just simply, I'm just going to go the route of believing that once I die, that there's, there's nothing. Can I tell you something? Most of the people in this world that have bought into what is called a nihilism, which is, that's what that is, is when you believe that there's nothing beyond this life. Do you know that the, those people that hold to that kind of belief system uh, also carry with them the highest suicidal rate of any other group of people in the world? Why? Because if there's nothing to live for, there's nothing to live for. But listen to me. Very few people fall into that category. Most people fall in the category that we believe that there is life after death, that we really do believe that there is a place called heaven. But the problem is, is that everybody believes that everybody's eventually going to make it into heaven. And listen to me this morning, folks. That's simply not true. Not everybody is going to go to heaven. And God is not simply just going to hand out uh, cards that say, hey, you get a pass, you get, this ain't Oprah Winfrey, right? It's not, you get a pass, you get into heaven, you get into heaven, you get into heaven. No, the Bible is very clear that when we die, that there is an immediate judgment before God. That we stand before the great judge of the universe, and he is going to ask us uh, a very important question. And just like Jesus says here, he says in verse 27, He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And Jesus says, you are quite wrong. Listen, there's nothing worse than to get before the judge of the universe who will make the final decision on, on, on everyone's life. And for him to get there and for him to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? And for you to come off with some big, long answer of why you think you should get into heaven. And Jesus looks at you and he says, guess what? You are quite wrong. You want to know what the answer to the question is? 
Anybody like to have the answers to the test before you take it? Anybody in here looking online for the answers to the test before you take it? No, don't admit to that. That would not be good. Anybody in here trying to talk to the people who were in the grade ahead of you, said, hey, do you still have the test from this test from last year? Here's the answer to the test. I heard this in a sermon not long ago. When we stand before God on the day of judgment, and he says, why should I let you, 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 into, into my heaven. Why should I let you into my heaven? If your answer starts with you, you've got the wrong answer. If the first word out of your mouth is, I, you've got the wrong answer. Jesus is going to say, wrong answer. You want to know what the right answer is? This is what the pastor said in his sermon. He was preaching on the cross and the thief on the cross. And he said, when the thief on the cross who turned to Jesus and, and, and said, you are the son of God, he said, when he died and, and, and immediately when he draw his last breath, he stood before the God of the universe in heaven. And the God of the universe said, why should I let you into my heaven? His answer was, the man on the, the man." on the middle cross said I could come. The man on the middle cross said I could come. You know what the answer is? It's not I. It's he, your son, the one on the middle cross said I could come. And when that's your answer, here's what the God of the universe will say. That's the right answer. That's the answer to eternal life into heaven. Any other answer is eternal life separated from me in a very real place called hell. David, would you come? So bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. Let's just, let's just have a, about a 60-second dialogue as we get ready to sing our last song. What's your answer this morning? Is your answer to the God of the universe? Well, you should let me in because mama is in there and, and papa or, or mom or dad's in there or my son or my daughter is in there or, or, or a friend is in there or, or some family member is in there. Is your answer to, to Jesus, well, you know, I, I went to church a lot and, and, I, and I did a lot of good stuff and, and I went on some mission trips and, and I was pretty faithful and, and given some of my money and... And you just went on and on with your laundry list of religious activities. Listen, if, if your answer to God on the day of judgment starts with you, you have the wrong answer. But listen, if it starts with Your word said that if I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, I would be saved.
That would be a right answer. If your answer is, your son said, anyone who would come to me, I will in no wise cast him out. If your answer is, Jesus said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Then you got the right answer. Do you got the right answer this morning? Or does your answer begin with something besides Jesus? And then listen to me this morning in closing. If, if, if Jesus is your answer, if your answer begins with Jesus, then listen to me this morning. The Bible says that the harvest is right, but the labors are few. There are so many people that find themselves in this same place this morning. They don't have the answer to the question. And so this morning, I'm going to do something. I, I haven't implored you in a long time to, to come to an altar. But I am going to do that today. I'm going to implore, what, if you can physically come, come. If, if you can't, if you'll just sit where you are and kind of make your chair there an altar and pray. But I'm going to ask Christians right now to begin to pray for those people that they know that don't have the right answer to the question. Jesus said, pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest. He'll send workers into the field. So I'm going to ask you to do that. If you're in need of prayer, I'll be standing down front. I'd love to pray with you. Father, in these next moments, as David sings over us, I pray that you would work through us and in us and that the prayers that we would pray in the moments ahead would be prayers that would be answered and those whom we are praying for in the days ahead would find the right answer. In Christ's name, amen. David, go ahead and sing.